I mean, like I said before, these guys have got a shot at winning this. They really have. And, uh, and we you know, we've got to think positive thoughts and cross everything we've got because they can it. They can do it. Well, hold on to your seats. It's the Olympic final, the men's eights. Horses are racing. Great Britain, lane two. United States of America, Romania, attention. Green lights, full lane order, Italy on top in one, Great Britain two, Australia three, Croatia in four, USA in the black boat, second black boat closest to us in five, Romania in lane number six, and this, 49 strokes per minute. But look at that, it's Great Britain grouped ahead. 250 metres gone and the British have really taken the bit between their teeth. They look like gold medalists in the uh, repassage race, they're at 42 strokes per minute. The British crew has such good technique. They really don't waste anything at the front end of the stroke. They pick it up there. That good technique, if they can maintain that and hold that good technique all the way through the race, it's going to pay dividends. Second 500, yeah, Steve Trapwell sits closest to us. He's in the stroke seat now. He'll be pushing them on. And Croatia have taken it on. But Great Britain, oh gosh, they look strong. Look strong. 1912, Stockholm. We have to go back to Stockholm in 1912 for the last Olympic gold medal. Look at that, three quarters of lead. Come on, let's go, let's they've go. Opened they've opened up a bit more. They've moved away from Croatia. This is fantastic stuff. Three quarters of a length in the lead with 750 metres to go. If they get any more than this, if they get more out to a length, they're going to win this. At the moment, it's, I can't, I'm not, I'm not sure they can still win. I, they need more. I'd love them, I'd love them to get out to a length. I, I, I'm so impressed with the way they've got Australia, Italy, all those guys under the thumb. They need to keep themselves out of the charge to the line now, keep themselves away from it. Here we are, we looking at the Olympic champions as we come through the last mark here. We, I think we are Great Britain. We've got 500 metres remain. The boys are going well. Now, come on. You've got the chasing back. Croatia, they're not going to do it. Great Britain, are we going to win the Olympic title in the men's eight? We haven't done it since 1912. We've got 350, 400 metres remaining. The boys are looking strong. Steve Trammell, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's push them on, they're on 40 strokes per minute, the white bird of Australia is coming back, the Croatians have died, the Australians are looking like the challengers, we have 250 metres remaining, and the boys are doing so well, Australia are coming back, it's three quarters of length, they can't do it, they're going to run out of space, you're going to run out of water, because on Lake Penrith, the British boys are holding them up, 150 metres remain, and Australia continues Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. It's a role in South Africa. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another awesome episode of The Row Show. 
Uh, as always, it's myself, Lawrence Britton, and with me, Jake Green. And guys, we are so excited today. We have uh, just unpacked our new audio equipment um, and we're coming to you with our brand new uh, studio set up with our brand new microphone. So I, I, I know that the, the, squ- the quality of sound coming to your ears must be delicious right now. Hey, Lawrence. Yeah, it's really, really exciting. Christmas came early for us, so it's really, really cool to go from our trashy uh, USB mic that has done us so well for so many episodes to like finally get proper mics, proper recording equipment. So really, really excited. And thanks to you guys for all the support, all the love that you shared us and uh, and all those who, who helped uh, help make this happen on uh, through PayPal. So yeah, thanks so much for the, the support. And it's all down to you guys. So I hope that you enjoy this episode coming up as much as we enjoyed it today. We have a banger guest, a really, really cool, really cool story, really cool journey. Jake, who do we yeah, have? Yeah. So, so today we are speaking to Steve Trapmore, who is a legend from the 2000 Back in Black 8 from GB. They, uh, they went on to win the gold medal at the 2000 Olympics. Coming in, um, not as favorites, uh, if you guys remember our episodes with Brian Volpenheim, and Jake Vetzel, you know the eight legacy from 2000-2008 is, uh, is quite interesting. And we finally got the 2008 on the, on the podcast with Steve. Um, America won the last three world champs going in. And Steve Trapmore stroking the British eight pulled, um, pulled an amazing regatta off and came away with the win. Yeah, so I mean, the eight's always such a big race, such a big legacy. And... You know, we've done 2008 with Jake Vetzel. We've done 2004 with Brian Volpenheim. So now we've got 2000, Steve Trapmore, British 8, back in black. Really, really awesome uh, crew. And I mean, it, this is a crew that I uh, kind of grew up watching when I joined the, the national team. Uh, I would often watch the videos of them training, them racing, because the way that they execute the technique, the technical aspects of rowing in an eight was phenomenal. And I always looked there, uh, especially their catch, the way the, the, the eight puts the blade in the water and turns the boat is absolutely phenomenal. And what a race, what a journey uh, that Steve has had. And, you know, on top of having such an awesome rowing career, he's also a rowing coach. So he just brought a whole different dynamic to uh, to our interview and to our to our questions, and I think he had a great time uh, reliving all the the good days of rowing and and going into the the technical aspects of being a coach. And we had a great time listening to to him chat about rowing. Yeah, and uh, I'm really excited to hear your guys' feedback on this episode. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping, please, guys. So uh, the please continue supporting us on our social media channels. Uh, we love uh, hearing from you guys, so you guys can get in contact by emailing us. You can uh, DM us on Instagram, and of course, you can also support us through PayPal. Um, every every little bit of help um, goes a long way, and um, of course, it's it's you guys are an integral part integral part of uh, growing the show. And getting the the you know the road show bigger and out there. Cool guys, thanks for for helping us out so much and and joining us on this on this journey that we're going on. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this episode and please enjoy. I think that's enough babbling on for us. Yeah, dude. enjoy guys. Ciao. How's it going, ladies and gents? And uh, we are back again with another episode. And today we are speaking to Stephen Trapmore from the UK. Um, Stephen, how are you going? And thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem at all. Going really well, and uh, thanks for having me on. 
Perfect. So to to go off the bat, um, we all know that you, obviously we're very familiar with your awesome race at the 2000 Olympics, and we will get into that a little bit on. But to begin with, I want to kind of get into the you know the the ingredients and the you know the development of that final product um, of a performance at the games, and take it back a couple of years, maybe to 97 when you were starting out. In the senior team, pushing you know into boats, uh, messing around with selections. Uh, maybe just speak to us a bit about what that early process was like. What was it like rowing in like the Cox Fours, and you know, how was the selection process in terms of getting into the eight and starting to establish you, yourselves as a a force on the international circuit? Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I guess the was very lucky to be invited uh, by uh, Jurgen Grobler to train Leander in uh, what I now term as a, as a, as a gap year um, between school and university. But uh, at the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life um, and thought Roman's pretty cool and uh, wanted to do a bit more of it and uh, have the opportunity to train uh, with some of the international guys that were training with Jurgen at the time and particularly with uh, Redgraven Pinson. Um, was uh, too too good an offer to to miss, and um, it's worth saying that the the system in uh, GB at the time is very was very different to what everyone knows of it now. There was uh, there was less centralisation uh, on the whole. There was a couple of I think what you probably call performance centres for um, the heavyweight men and the lightweight men. Um, obviously, there's a there's a fantastic group of heavyweights at uh, Leander with Jürgen and. Redgrave and Pinson, um, but uh, at the time, uh, Nottingham, which is where I went to university, was a uh, formidable force in lightweight rowing and happened to be some of the guys that I went through the junior system with uh, going uh, to train up there as well. So there's a, there's a small group of ex-junior guys and I kind of figured out I'm not I'm not a massive heavyweight rower, I've you know, never been hugely strong in the gym and I kind of figured I needed to if I wanted to progress significantly in the sport I needed to figure out actually how to apply myself um, and get the most out of myself on the water so learning a little bit from uh, lightweights seemed like um, a, a good idea at the time. So you said like the the team GB was a little bit different and the structure uh, was a little bit less centralized but I mean joining the team at that time with you know, uh, Matthew Pinsent and uh, Steve Redgrave at their, almost the height of their powers. Uh, what is the culture like in that uh, senior team of, of heavyweight? Oh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. Um, I mean, the, I mean, obviously there's historically there's, there's, there's a lot of um, success over the years um, in, in the British team. And, and at that time, you know, uh, Redgrave and Pinsent, they come off the back of, uh, of winning in in Barcelona, um, they were, you know, they 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 were moving on to to, to more success down the line, and um, to be able to train um, with them and and the, and the guys that were in the team at Leander at the time, which was mostly um, the eights group, um, the fours group, um, moving up towards Atlanta was um, was training uh, down in in Molsey. That was Tim Foster and. Um, Rupert Obholzer and the Searle brothers. Um, so they were a little bit separate. And um, I later found out at being part of the team that obviously people come together on training camps. So whilst the training is a little bit separate in sort of day-to-day 
uh, life. Actually, the, the the team did get together quite a lot, and obviously um, on on camps at altitude and you know race tuning camps and that kind of stuff. So there, so there was quite a lot of continuity there. But 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 my my specific experience at the time was just you know trying to keep up with all these guys and. Um, as you do here, you know, even even then, um, Greg Raven Pinson were a household name, not just in the rowing community, but uh, but further afield than that. Yeah, and and just to be beside them in the gym and um, experience how 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 they train from a you know from a from a from a pitching at a really high level perspective, but also to a consistency in a day to day perspective. Um, was at a totally different level obviously i'm you know only just out of juniors so um you know it was like tiny 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 little fish in a in a, in a big pond there um but um and there was a lot of guys up and coming at the time as well and you know people like james cracknell obviously goes got, gone on to a huge amount of success with those um with those guys as well but um to, to, to learn from those guys and and really really just understand how to how to train them and 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 row well but push yourself hard day in day out and um obviously Jürgen was at the at the forefront of guiding that and to have that opportunity and um was was fantastic and every now and then someone was ill or injured and you know you get subbed into a senior boat and you know it was <laughs> it was um you know pretty pretty scary to be honest um and sitting there doing your best not to mess up and trying to pull as hard as you can so you don't get you know, don't get um, singled out by the coach or the other athletes. But you know, everyone was very encouraging, and um, you know, they obviously had their own job to do, but uh, were really supportive in um, developing and, and you know, ribbing the younger guys as well in a in a in a in a productive way. Sure, that is amazing, and I mean, I think anyone listening knows that feeling of joining a new team and trying to up your game to to make sure that you you fit in and that uh, you don't get singled out. And I can imagine. Uh, with uh, you know, Pinson and Redgrave around, it must have been just that little bit extra uh, pressure on you. And then that other, the other aspect that you spoke about that I, I want to touch on is uh, you said you, you joined like kind of with the lightweights and you, you wanted to learn from the lightweights. And this is something that's come up before, especially when we, we chatted to uh, Drew Ginn because he said that, you know, heavyweights kind of everyone rose with power and brute force and only lightweights are, are really looking for the skill and the finesse of the boat. And, you know, it's such an interesting way of looking at it because the lightweights obviously don't have the power to, to, to brute force it along. They have to look for the, the skill of rowing. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about kind of where that went and, and what, you, what you really picked up from, uh, from the lightweights. Yeah, well, I guess it started um, at, at my club originally. Um, I was really lucky to be able to train as a junior with a guy called Roger Everington, who um, was the seventh seat in the 92 uh, silver medal uh, lightweight eight in Montreal for GB. And he was more than happy to, you know, scull alongside me and a couple of the other juniors there at the time. And, you know, even go spent a lot of time in doubles and quads and just trying, just kind of, um, I guess he, he was a catalyst in, provoking thoughts about actually how to manage yourself out on the water and how to develop consistency of movement and manage you know physiology levels to get the most out of sessions and that kind of stuff and I sort of realized as as I went along and particularly in my experience training with the heavyweights um, that there was a huge gap between my physiological capabilities and and that of the 
you know the top echelon of, of British rowing at the time and that you know almost in a way that it was demoralizing that I, I couldn't see a way of bridging that that gap to be you know competitive with those guys let alone successful and I was just really lucky in that the, to to have the opportunity to go and train with them as well and I, I guess put two and two together a little bit to you know find a way of um, you know, I knew I wanted to keep rowing and knew, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life other than continue and, and, and keep getting better at, uh, at rowing. Just love the feeling of being on the water. I, I did a lot of sculling at that point. I, you know, I always saw myself as a sculler. And yeah, just to, just to realise really that I, I had the opportunity to go and train with these uh, these lightweight world champions um, and some some juniors that were kind of, I guess, heading down the same path as I was. You know, in challenging, challenging ourselves from a, an efficiency and effective perspective, but also have a, a bit of a role model set up in the, in the lightweights that were there, um, was again, you know, an opportunity not to uh, not to pass up. And I, I kind of I knew that I I needed or I should go to university because I didn't really know how everything would turn out. So I kind of um, I think my parents were pretty pretty hot on me actually doing something outside of rowing just in case things didn't work out so and that's that's kind of how I, I, I landed up at Nottingham you know and, and a lot of the training was left to our own devices particularly in the week um, you know despite those guys being you know world medalists and you know historically very very successful they all had jobs um, you know so invariably in the week there was a really good group of people that you just meet out on the lake there and you know bashing round and um you know people were really happy to pick each other up and, and and train together and you know the lightweights as they do tend to sit half a length up on the heavyweights and you know there's a lot of sledging that goes on but um but that, that's that's great that keeps you on your toes you know and um you know it 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 it, it makes you you know it sort of forces you to think about what you're doing and you know obviously you, you never want to be beaten by anyone let alone lightweight so you, you know <laughs> but o- over the years sort of figured a few things out and um i think without without all of that experience i'd never have the opportunity to pitch up and um get uh, get recognized with the with the senior team yeah so yeah that's really awesome stuff and i, I love the, the this talk about the lightweights because i mean even down here in south africa I mean, lawrence and i've had uh, plenty of experience of you know training uh, through our younger years up against a lot of lightweight rows and it's 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 really ruthless and yeah. I often find in those steady sessions and you side by side you're really pulling hard and it really becomes an element of how what else can you change to give yourself a bit of an advantage because you can't just keep throwing what's the problem you've got to hit the cap um, and you you restrict it with stroke rate so that's you know that's really interesting to talk about and. Just move, moving forward a bit, um, so in 1998, you find yourself into the um, the GB8. That was the first season that you managed to uh, hold the seat throughout all the World Cups and the World Champs. Yeah. Definitely, there was a bit of potential in that eight, but obviously, I'm sure you guys were utterly disappointed with the, the World Champs finish. Talk to us about that first season there, racing against you know um, the international competition. You had the USA, which was such a big name around that time. And yeah, what was it like finishing off uh, your first season with the GB8? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it was all a bit of a whirlwind to be honest. I'd, um, I competed um, with a 
um, a, a club crew, I guess, a, Not with a Nottinghamshire County crew at the Non-Olympic Worlds in 96. Um, and uh, we came fourth um, that year. So that was a fantastic experience. The following year, um, had one change in the crew. Actually, Ed Code came into the crew, um, who you, you, you guys must know from later success. Um, and we went one better in 97 to, to get a bronze medal. Um, but, uh, and, and that was really what got um, myself and Ed really a, a, a kind of a, a footing into the next stage and an invite to train full time um, as, as, a, as I guess as a heavyweight of heavyweights in our own right back down at Leander again, um, which is where the eight was based um, and the uh, and the and the four as well. Um, so, you know, back training with the guys that um, I'd learned so much from a few years before and, um, you know, part of a, a project that um, Martin McElroy uh, was heading up for the whole of that Olympiad. Um, so I guess at that point coming in as a bit of a newbie there. Um, and again, trying to had a, had, actually had a fair bit of experience in the eights at uh, Notts County and... Um, and um, some success at Henley uh, as well through that. So um, whilst I had a background in sculling, I think the experience at, at Nottingham got me more uh, convinced that rowing wasn't a bad option as well. Um, actually had to change sides um, through that process. Um, originally it was rowing on bow side, but actually trained, changed to stroke side um, to kind of facilitate um, uh, the next stages. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it's back into full-time training. I was actually living at my, my parents' house, um, which was a uh, 45-, 50-minute commute at the time, um, which wasn't ideal. But uh, obviously, you, you know, you've got to go through these things to um, to take the opportunities where you can. And, yeah, it was it was, <laughs> it was just good, tough training. And, you know, we, we were the, – the, the group was really young, Um there was a couple of older guys that were, were also vying for seats. Um, and I, I guess it was the the beginnings of um, the journey for what you saw um, on the uh, on the start line in, in 2000. Um, and there, I think with all of these journeys, there's, there's an awful lot of people that are involved with it, both on and off the water. And I think no one can get to where they end up without, you know, having to have support from those those people, whoever they are, but also have to compete against those people, whoever they are. Um, so I guess it was a year of, you know, having to prove ourselves as individuals and having to prove ourselves as units in the boat. And, you know, as the selectors were trying to decide on, on exactly what the character of this, um, this, this boat was going to be. And actually we, 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 we did have some success that year. We got a few world cup medals. Um, nobody had actually been, you know, properly successful at the top end. So we were learning as we were going. Um, and we had, a, you know, quite a few ups and downs. And actually, um, going into the uh, World Championships, we we um, we weren't going so well. Um, and we actually changed the order at the last minute. And, you know, it ne never really gelled. We, I mean, we did have a few highlights in training, but we could never really convert it into, into top end success just because... Um, I think I think we didn't have as individuals and as collective, we just didn't have the training um, background, but also didn't have the technical background as heavyweights um, to make the most of 
um, the physical capabilities of the individuals at the time. So it was very much, um, you know, trying to do the right thing, but not really understanding how to. And um, it, and it's like it's such a tricky thing, especially in the eight. You know, you have um, just changing the order of the same eight people in the boat can make such a profound effect on the on the results. I mean, we heard the Dutch in 2019 talk about how they changed uh, some of the seating in the middle of the regatta and how uh, they'd done so much better at the, the end of the race and yeah and, and now and especially now that you've done a lot of coaching as well how what are the things that you're looking for when seating in the seating the eight and how does it um and why do you think it makes such a big difference to the speed at the end of the day um well i think you know every 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 seat there's a role for every seat um you know and there's a character for every unit and there's a character for every crew um and everyone has to play a role you know a little bit maybe as an individual but more more how um they work cohesively with the people around them um and i think that was the that was the thing that we were we were trying to learn in that season um you know exactly what those roles were you know whether we were facilitating and helping other people and creating rhythm and platform so maybe people who are less technically orientated could actually work and be comfortable and confident you know and, and in turn feel confidence from that you know and, and and build that sort of electricity that you get from a from a shell that's moving really 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 well um and i think we just we just didn't know how to do that and you know everything was just slightly mistimed or felt a bit flat-footed or was a little bit rushed here and there and for us at the time you know changing the order was a little bit of a last-ditch um, effort to find emergency speed if you like or <laughs> um, as I think you know there's these days the crews are so well drilled that it's maybe more of a refinement thing um, you know and I think people are a lot a lot more a lot more um, tuned in to being able to make the most of their own um, capabilities in, in, you know, every seat. Um, whereas at the time, I think, you know, certainly for us, we didn't have the physicality that was needed. And certainly you, you, you mentioned the, the Americans, we were nowhere near as physical as those guys. So we were just trying to figure out how to, how to bridge the gap. And I think that was, that was the catalyst for what happened uh, the following year and how the coach had set us up on the, you know, the next two years of that journey. Yeah, and uh, you literally just touched on a point I wanted to um, come on because in, in 1999, you guys definitely, there was a, you, you definitely found something started to click because you, you spent that majority of that season on the, you know, on the podium. And the key thing here is that you finished world champion, the world championships in second place uh, just behind America. So uh, in the 1990 season, what you felt like changed? I know you said you know you guys wanted to, you needed more training, yeah. and obviously I the training came around, and with the training the physicality came around. But what about the other elements? Maybe the technical elements, the camaraderie of the group. What are, what about the the abstract um, you know things that happen in a boat that most people don't understand or realize? What did what came together in 1999 that put you guys on the you know, on the radar as one of the fastest states in the world. Yeah, well, I think that's that's a very pertinent question, actually, very you know, spot on, because that was that was really the point where um, we were 
um, the, the 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 coaching the coaching team basically gave us the opportunity to um, develop all those skills, and we actually train changed training base and moved away from uh, Leander and um, moved to train at um, the British Rowing Administration headquarters in in London in in Hammersmith, right by Hammersmith Bridge. Um, so we were rowing on the on the tideway and. Um, you know, you, you guys have all seen the Oxford Cambridge boat race, um, so you know you know what the tideway can be like. But for for us, in terms of training, it was a massive expanse of water um, that we could really basically do miles and miles and miles of unbroken training. So yes, we were developing the you know the the the, the, the engine, the, the cardio um, ability of of us in individuals, and, and it wasn't just in the eight. This was in singles and and pairs and fours as well um and but those miles um also made that meant that we had to develop our our mental skill set and the ability to focus on the technical development aspects for extended periods of time and i think that was that was one of the key bits to be able to distill those you know the main technical drivers um and have to repeat them you know, not just for a a two k um, stretch of a of a of a track, but for you know a twelve k stretch of a twenty four k outing. Um, and I think the other the other massive thing that happened um, that season was um, Martin McElroy uh, invited Harry Marn to come and do some uh, coaching through the season with us as well. Um, and uh, I think everybody knows um, the prowess of of Harry, um, and I think that that you know with, without without him and without the relationship of Harry and Martin, we wouldn't have been able to um, understand exactly what those technical elements were and those crew cohesion elements were, and we wouldn't we wouldn't have basically known what to what to develop to translate into a race scenario um and i said before you've got to remember at this time there was no real centralized training program in in great britain at the time so um i think um uh you know and certainly there wasn't the historical success outside of um you know a few a few of the top end heavyweight crews um and you know the atlanta olympics um stephen matthew were the only not only the rowing, the only rowing crew from Great Britain to get a gold medal, but the only team in the whole of Great Britain to get a gold medal. Um, so uh, yeah, so it was very very different times. Um, and uh, and through that success, we were rowing as a sport was in a fantastic place at the at the um, at the birth of the national lottery program in the in the UK as well. So that was that was the or or, or the Olympiad that my most of my experience comes from was the first Olympiad that was that, that received any kind of funding from the National Lottery. So, you know, 19, um, uh, the winter of 1998, a lot of things uh, came into place. So it wasn't just the fact that we moved train base. It wasn't just the fact that we, you know, that, that the coaching setup was um, was broadened, and it wasn't just the fact that, that suddenly there was some subsistence money available. It was, I think, it was a combination of all of that stuff 
um, you know, and the impetus that, that Steve and Matthew um, injected into sport in the UK at the time. So, um, so you speak about Harry Mon joining uh, joining the the coaching uh, team and and taking you guys on, and like we we're really interested because obviously we know that he's he's coached like some of the most amazing athletes, and but like how did it work with him because he seems to have coached like so many different countries and. I mean, it, it looks like he even coached Rob Wardell and you guys at the 2000 Olympics. So how was he like kind of in and out all the time? Or, I mean, how did that structure work with him? Yeah, he had, um, I mean, I, for one of a better term, he was, he was a guest coach. So he would turn up for a week at a time or a long weekend here, hit and there. He would come on the water training camps. Um so it, he wasn't there all of the time, but it was it, he had enough impact on what we were doing and how we were approaching stuff in those individual pockets of time that we could then go away and digest and you know consolidate. And Martin could then drill us and drill us and drill us in the same themes um, okay. that he'd worked on with Harry. So um, it, in in a way, I think it was it was really good for us because it didn't. You know, it didn't completely fry our brains, <laughs> um, but it was also, I think, probably good for him because it left him flexible to do the other the other rowing coaching that he wanted to do around uh, around the world. And I think, you know, I was very lucky to know him for a couple of years. And um, I think the biggest thing that stood out was that he just loves the sport of rowing and he'd coach absolutely anybody, you know, from, you know, J14 school crew to you know, Olympic wannabes, you know, and everywhere in between. And that was, you know, that that was fantastic and infectious. And, and it came across in the way that he coached. Yeah, that is that is amazing. That's uh, really interesting because, um, I mean, he even spent some time in South Africa helping our, our team uh, get set up. So basically like a, an impact coach. Um, I think... I want to, the next question I want to know is like, so you finished the, the 98, uh, uh, year with your seventh place and then things started to come right and you, you got, uh, two second places at the world, uh, world cups and then a second place at world champs. And then moving on to that Olympic year where you, the results just kind of keep stepping up. You got a second place at world cup one, uh, two first at the world cups two and three. And then, uh, and then obviously the gold at the games, at what point mm. did you guys start to get the belief that uh, that the gold medal was was achievable? Um, that's a that's a fantastic question. I, I think um, like I, I'd say I'd say things did turn a turn a point um, to turn a corner in the summer of of ninety nine. I mean the um, the first World Cup that year was in uh, Harzwink, I think, and. Um, you know, like I said before, we'd been on the podium a little bit the year before, but it wasn't, um, it never felt like it was something that was, uh, gathering momentum. And I think that was through, through the winter and the spring of that, that season and, and all the, the work we did on the, on the tideway and, you know, the, 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 the training camps we did with the main team, you know, and, and all of the, the, you know, the benefit and the pressure that comes with that, um, put us into a position in that first World Cup in 99 to, to basically go out and test what we'd learned. And I, I remember the time 
um, the race plan for that race was um, it was the first 20 strokes. And then that was there was nothing else after that. It was just get the first 20 strokes right, get off the blocks and into some kind of rhythm, you know, and then just maintain that rhythm. Um, and I think that was the first time that we really learned that cohesion meant quite a big deal. Um, and it was a way to, I guess, harness and encapsulate the power of of, of individuals' um, ability, whether that was you know actual physical power or mental power or technical power or whatever. But it was a way to synchronise all of this stuff from these nine individuals um, uh, into a result. And you know, we we okay, we got a silver medal but it was something that felt like it was a foundation that we could build on. And that continued through that season. Um, and there was a lot going on in other crews within the, in the British team at that time as well. And um, we were, were, were kind of really lucky in a lot of ways to have Tim Foster uh, come into the, into the crew through the season Um He's uh, just just off the back of being on the podium in uh, in the Coxes Four in uh, Atlanta and uh, trying to trying to um, consolidate a seat in the um, in the Coxes Four for for Sydney with um, Steve Matthew and James um, and he'd had an injury which put him out for a period of time and and I guess we caught him at the right time of his rehabilitation process where he could come and you know be a part of our team of you know youngsters i guess um so he, he could kind of benefit from the enthusiasm and drive and determination that we had and we could benefit from you know the experience um and and wisdom and you know boat moving capabilities that he had himself and i think you know i think he was um he's a fan obviously fantastic athlete but he's a he's a very efficient and effective athlete and very good at um very well known for bringing you know being a, a conduit within a crew and I think you know that's another thing through that season that for us we we learned a lot of stuff through and I think for him it was really really useful to to help him um get himself back on into contention for what he then went on to on to do as well and I think we just learned day to day um what the standards were even even better and that helped refine that and you know, and it was really great. And he, he, he actually became, uh, you know, an, an integral member of the team. So very much part of, of what we were doing. And, and, you know, it was fantastic to have had that experience. And I think he, he would say the same thing about the time that he spent with us. And um, but for, for, for both of both of us, it was, a, you know, it's a stepping stone on to other things the following year. Yeah, so... I wanted to uh, move it onwards towards the beginning of the Olympics and talk about a bit about the, how the, the, the eights rowing was operating at the time. What's very interesting about this point in time in, in rowing in eights is that there were so many fast eights on the circuit that you know could, if they had a good on-form regatta, could place first. I mean, the Croatians were fast, and yeah. it must be the only time I've ever seen a Croatian eight that quick. Australians <laughs> were quick. I mean, the, the year before 99, you guys lost to Romania and Russia. So there were so many fast eights. And of course, the big one is that the USA don't race the circuit in Europe and they only come rocking up at World Champs. And that's a huge span in the works for everyone else. 
So talk about the environment going into the Olympic Games. Um, well, yeah, so I guess, um, you know, the way, the way that we looked at it through the seasons is that we, we were just trying to pick each crew off one at a time. Um, we, weren't, we weren't trying to do anything that we, you know, that was too far beyond our reach. And I think that was from that, from that first World Cup in 99, it was sort of galvanizing confidence you know, race to race, and yes, that set the foundation. And you ask what, you know, where did we really think? Um, well, certainly from my perspective, that that there was a there was a, a you know a proper opportunity here, and that wasn't until we raced in Lucerne in 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 2000. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, we've gone through we we've gone into that season again trying to pick crews off one at a time and. It, you know, like like you said, not all crews are at every race, so you can't always do that. And in the end, by the time we actually got to the Olympics, um, I think we'd been in front of, uh, well, we'd beaten everybody except except the Americans uh, at some point through that period of two years. And actually, the Americans, um, you know, they had an incredible run of success um, through that Olympia. They're world champions every year. Um, and actually, in the 1999 world championships um we ended up with a silver medal um which i guess set us up for the following year but that final race um we were able for a brief a fleeting uh, moment get our bows uh, ahead of the americans they went off um incredibly hard and fast in that race um and we just churned through the middle thousand to to nudge ahead um in uh, towards the end of the third quarter um, and, uh, you know, I know some of the guys in that American eight, uh, quite well. And they, I think they just looked across and said, uh, uh-uh, not today and just put the hammer down. And, um, we, we didn't have any tools to respond. Um, so, you know, they, they were the only crew that we had actually been in front. We hadn't actually beaten to the line, but we knew that we had a chance because we had been ahead of them at one point in a, you know, a championship race. Um, but uh, it was at that uh, Lucerne regatta that um, we'd just come off the back of Henley where um, we'd been beaten in the final of the Grand by the Australians. Um, and uh, we'd been beaten soundly, actually. It was um, uh, quite, uh, quite frustrating because um, we'd actually beaten them um, a few uh, weeks before that in the uh, previous World Cup. So it was a bit of a ding-dong. They... They beat us, we'd beat them, they'd beat us kind of thing. Um, and um, we're having a pretty tough time anyway going into uh, into Lucerne with some of the cohesion elements and, um, you know, having to do quite a lot of really basic basic drilling and revisiting and some basic points. And I think, I think really looking back at it, that was the thing that we were really good at, just trying to focus on doing basic stuff well. And going into that regatta, we were actually pretty excited to be able to go and uh, race against against the crews there and, and put um, you know put a marker down and that was uh, that, that was the plan but we raced raced the heat and I think after the heat there was a huge um, thunderstorm for one of the, for, for the uh, one of the training rows and uh, we got we got really cold uh, out on the water and um, one of the one of the guys, uh, Lewis Atrell, who's in the uh, in the four seat, had um, basically didn't um, uh, played havoc with his back, um, and uh, so the next morning um, for the final, 
um, we knew that uh, we'd had a chat with uh, with Martin and the crew and uh, the night before, and we weren't too sure what was going to happen, whether Lewis was going to going to race or not, and we were going to see how he is. Um, but uh, we didn't do a pre-ride that morning, and uh, we just uh, we just warmed up for the race. Uh, Martin and Harry were saying, "Look, don't worry about it. We're, we're going to figure this out. Um, we've got a plan." And uh, we got the boat uh, out, put it on the landing stage, um, actually without Lewis, because he, the the medics had decided that it was it was too risky for him to uh, to row, um, and uh, he had to spend a bit of time managing his injury, um, which was the best thing for him to do at the time. But um, I don't know if you remember the racing that happened around that, but the w- when we were doing that, the uh, the four, the Cox's four, was barreling down the track in their final. And didn't have the best race, and I think that was one the one in the end by, oh, I want to say the Americans, but I think uh, the the British guys didn't podium, and um, they they came back to the landing stage, and uh, Jürgen and Martin went over to the crew and um, basically said to James Cracknell, look, we need some help with the eight. Lewis has gone down. Can you get out and and uh, and help these guys out and have a have a little bit of an extended pre paddle and do another race, <laughs> extended warm down paddle and do another race. Um, so of course he was spitting bullets because they hadn't done so well in the four. Um, yeah, I know. So he he just basically went from from getting out of the four straight into the A. We did the warm up. I was on the start line and um, didn't really know what to expect. The warm up was actually really pretty good. Um, you know, obviously James is a fantastic rower. Um, really nice touch and feel, and slotted in really well straight into the uh, into the four seat. Just uh, we had a really simple race plan, um, and we just uh, the idea was just to get out and go as hard as we could, and just try and hold on. Um, and I think that 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 race um, basically taught us how hard you can go, not just how hard you have to go, because um, the Roly the Cox. Um, pulled into the first big push that we did into the second uh, quarter and I think um, James was so fueled with anger and adrenaline and annoyance and that he pulled the boat a foot across the lane on his own um, so I think that was a bit of a realisation for everybody else that oh my god we've got to go with this um, and you know we just kept going and going and going and I think that was basically laid down a bit of a hallmark for the, the rest of the racing that we did going into into Sydney, the realization actually that there's a level above where you think the limit is, um, and I think that was that was the that was where we really felt that you know we knew we'd gone pretty well, we knew we'd beaten a lot of these crews, um, but we knew that we didn't have the consistency necessarily to that point to do it all at the same time. So I guess that was another major, um, a major uh, string to the bow. I guess so. You know, going into subsequent uh, training camps and um, you know the run into the games. I guess we we had another uh, another another element that we thought that we could exploit. So not only the the simplicity of the technical proficiency, but also I guess the the, the rawness of the untapped physical capabilities of us as individuals um so i think through this whole experience i think i guess the the things that, that stands out to me is that we just 
we were trying to learn at every single opportunity that we had and that was presented to us. And I think, um, you know, they, they, they reared their heads in, in very different ways and we didn't always get it right. But what we were prote- prepared to do was take a bit of a risk and explore these avenues. And I think, you know, without all of those those different elements, we wouldn't have had the confidence that we had then going into the games itself. Sure. That is just such a cool story. I can't believe that. That is amazing uh, that all of that came to came together and how that all turned out. And I think there's such important points in there for any rower out there to to listen and to, to take in. Um, you know, those are crucial aspects to rowing that if you want that success, you, you've got to hone in and you've got to keep it simple. You've got to find those limits and continually push, push, push and, and, and try and push those limits even further. So really awesome stuff there. And now finally, we're going to get into the, the, the Olympic Games. And obviously, you've taken all these experiences in and you've done this last block of training that has obviously gone very well. But coming into the heat at the Olympic Games, maybe not the, the start to the regatta that you guys were looking for because you, you came away with a, a second place in the heat, which meant going into the rep. And yeah, tell us about that first week at the or the first day at the games and how that was for you guys. Yeah, well, okay, I guess um, a little bit before that, we'd you know we we had all this experience stuff that um, we just sort of been through, and um, uh, we went into um, the subsequent training camps and the acclimatization camp that um, uh, in in Brisbane. Um, that we had with Team GB, and that was actually a fantastic experience because, um, you know, outside of the Olympics, there's not usually that many opportunities for rowers to mix with athletes from other sports. Um, you know, the World Championships is is, is usually an isolated event, um, and you know, obviously, rowing in itself is a fantastic community. But that that training camp um, from a from a GB perspective was a was a, was a multi sport camp. Um, so that, that added an extra level of, um, I guess, uh, stress, um, excitement, you know, cause you're seeing all of these guys that you see on TV and, you know, in, in, in different sports, you know, and that only exacerbated itself when, when we got to the, uh, got to the village and, you know, you guys, you guys know that anyway, so, you know, you see all of these um superstars from other sports and it's the most it's the strangest feeling um but actually that camp for us was a bit up and down and it it kind of um uh i I guess encapsulated some of the journey that we'd had that we'd had some incredible highs but we were still learning and still developing and um you know we 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 knew and it, it highlighted the fact that we had to be fully on our game you know every single stroke because you know, as, as individual athletes, no, nobody had actually really achieved anything. Um, you know, Ben Hunt Davis, who was in the uh, in the two seat, had been to um, the uh, the Barcelona and Atlanta Olympics and not actually done very well in terms of results. Obviously, he had a fantastic experience, but he was the only one with Olympic experience. The rest of us didn't have any of that level of experience and okay we had the the world championship experience from the last couple of years but you know in terms of you know developing momentum on the podium we we just didn't have that and you know it was a real real, 
I guess, test of faith and perseverance from the coaches and, I, I guess, openness from us through that camp to be able to produce some reasonable training results. And obviously, when you go on camp in a, in a big team, you're always comparing your results on percentage with the other crews. And, um, you know, if you don't hit the mark, you, you, you ask yourself a lot of questions and, you know, you, you put yourself under a lot of pressure to hit the mark. And when that mark is Redgrave and Pinson and Foster and Cracknell, it's, you know, it's a pretty high mark to, to achieve. So, you know, we, we, we were up there sometimes and we weren't up there sometimes. And I think that was the thing that we, we tried to galvanise through the experience, but, but also through the day-to-day delivery on that camp was basically trying to perform when we needed to perform. And, um, you know, I can remember some of the sessions there were just literally rowing 101. We were like, we just got no idea how to do this. Um, and of course, we that wasn't true, but it just felt like that because of the environment environment around that around us and the pressure that we put ourselves on ourselves as well to you know strive for this boat moving excellence, I guess if you want to put it that way. And I can remember a time, you know, we we hadn't we'd been going not not great for a couple of days and done a, a few crappy pieces, and um, and uh, Harry Marn actually came and sat in the coxing seat for a session and. Uh, that's something I'll never forget. Obviously, being in the in the stroke seat, I took the brunt of everything. <laughs> um, but uh, he he just wanted to get in the boat and um, you know be a little bit more of a, a conduit for what the feel of the boat was like for for Martin um, in the launch. Um, you know, so they could try and maybe help create stability and consistency for us in a different way. And you know, that really was a fantastic experience. And um, you know, for somebody who's obviously you know a, a hugely incredible coach and technical coach in his own right but to have him in the boat and actually you know trying to and actually translating what he was feeling into you know commands to help us um maximize our speed was was an a, again you know a great experience and i think you know probably at the time i think it blew our heads up a little bit um but once we'd you know come up coming off the water and um spent a couple of days simplifying and distilling um we actually felt that we make the transition to the games in in pretty good shape and actually cracked out a few pretty decent pieces in the end so had some had some confidence um and you know obviously as you do preparing as much as we could for the games environment obviously as i said there's only only ben who'd been to games before and um particularly steve redgrave was incredibly helpful to the whole team in that in those um in that period of time because he'd had huge amount of experience so he would have chats to us um about his experiences of the games that he'd been involved with and the things that he'd uh learned along the way and you know mistakes he'd made uh most mostly to do with um uh you know staying focused off the water and relaxing when it's time to relax but but making sure that that relaxation was actually productive for the next training session or race and not getting distracted in all of the other sort of the flamboyance of the, you know, the razzmatazz, which goes around with the Olympics. Um, of course, we had no, no understanding of that until really we got there. But, but we only, we, I think it wasn't until we did get there that we sort of realised actually the importance of maintaining that sort of calmness and, you know, the simplicity that uh, uh, Lawrence, you highlighted just there um, of what rowing is. I mean, it's not, it's, it is just rowing and you know yes there is a lot in that but if you can keep your mind and stay relaxed and you know 
home yourself in a you know a really positive um, and productive way you kind of get more out of it than you put in and um, we needed to do that because we didn't have the physical prowess of other crews that we were racing um, so we, we had to be on song and we felt actually that we'd we'd made a good transition from Brisbane to to Sydney we got to um, the village um, well I forget now four or five days ahead of racing so um, had a good good period of time to acclimatize um, to the uh, to the environment um, get used to traveling backwards and forwards from the venue um, you know and, and having to go through just the, the, the mundane logistic things of going through all the security in and out of the village and in and out of the venue and you know it wasn't wasn't too great that we we had to do a, a 50 minute bus journey um out to the uh out to the venue in penrith but you know it's the same for everybody and we just felt that we had to get on with it and um you know have that impact us less than other people um so we felt that we were set up pretty well for that and we felt that um you know that we we're going pretty well and um memory is a little bit hazy but uh you know i think the the sessions that we did leading up to the heat were of a pretty good quality and uh yeah, lined up for the heat um, against the the Australians that we consider the main opposition in that heat, and um, knowing that we'd been able to get a bows ahead of them in in Lucerne, albeit with a sub on board, yeah, incredibly good sub, but a, a very fatigued sub. So, you know, we felt that we were in a good position to do, you know, a similar level of performance. Went through all of the routines that you normally go through. You know, rehearsing the race plan in your head, first couple of strokes, what it's, what's it going to feel like, you know, what your roles are. The cops would just say a few things before we went off and, you know, focused on the lights and the call over. Um, you know, desperately try not to let the mind wander to all of the noise around you. And I think that's one of the things with the race racing when you're on the start line, there can be an awful lot of noise in comparison to the small boat stuff that, that, um, that you know we, we've all experienced is 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 a very very different experience you know it's very quiet and serene almost so um but the eights is not like that <laughs> at all um so um yeah really easy to let the mind wander so we, we we you know we knew what we had to do we knew we had to to win to get a ticket through to the final you know we had a plan you know we we, we actually knew that we could beat everyone in the race um buzzer went and um the boat basically didn't move it uh you know the australians i think well I, i'm sure and you know i know a few of those guys now down the line a little bit and i think you know they were obviously chomping at the bit to get revenge on us um you know and had the uh the, the, the heckles were up and they were out with a point to prove and you know took um took it to us in the first few strokes and we just didn't get moving and i think you know they disappeared into the distance and um okay we pulled them back a little bit and, and managed to to claw into a um uh, a second uh finish position to put us in a you know a good lane into the rep but um it's a, it's a very difficult thing to describe i mean the best the best analysis that we could come up with at the time was it just felt like a good training row and and not a race and we just felt like you know the whole um uh, the whole environment of the games was, you know, we let it get to us, although we said that we wouldn't and although we felt that we wouldn't. 
you know, we felt like maybe we had to produce something special, something that we'd not done before, you know, to, to, to get that result. And, and actually what we really needed to do was to produce what we had done before um, and have confidence in, in the elements that we knew were good. And I think we'd forgotten that. And we, we, we got in after that, um, you know, really, really angry with ourselves. Um, and obviously we got an absolute roasting from the coaches because, um, you know, they 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 knew that we hadn't performed in the way that we we could have done and should have done um and you know that happens from time to time but the worst thing was that we knew that as well you know harry uh harry Marn in that debrief said to us um you know guys you want to do the equestrian um the arena's over that way so just go get your bags and off you go um so <laughs> You know, and 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 you know, he he was right. We were just trying to do something and be something that we weren't, and um, and that was a uh, yeah, incredibly painful experience to go through. And I think um, if it if it wasn't for that experience, we wouldn't have been able to turn a corner and actually um, kind of encapsulate the experience of the whole preceding. Uh, Olympiad and you know do justice to everybody that have been involved with with the boat you know be they athletes you know that have been fighting for seats or you know practitioners that have been helping or you know just just anyone who've been supporting and you just felt you know really terrible because you let all these people down because you know you could have done better um and uh Martin actually the next day changed the training plan for for the for the for the next oh well for the next sessions leading up to the leading leading up to the rep and basically you know we knew that we were technically proficient we proficient we knew that we were you know we were effective and and, and all of those elements but we also knew that we had to race hard um, and that's the thing that we didn't do so basically he shortened up all of the sessions you know we do four k sessions instead of eight or twelve k sessions and it would be power strokes literally from the moment we took off the landing stage to the moment we got back on the landing stage um power strokes in pairs power strokes in fours power strokes in sixes in eights you know a, a whole variety of rates and we just basically pummeled the thing to death um and uh because i think um I, i'm not i'm not a proponent for going just to do that willy-nilly but because we had the you know, we'd spent two years building up, you know, in the majority of that crew had been together for two years before that. And, um, you know, the skill set had been building up. So the the value that we gained from those power strokes was was immense. You know, we, we went from, you know, being cat, cats caught in headlights to, you know, having a purpose and wanting to prove a point and do justice to the, to the mess up that we made in the first race and, you know, letting the Australians beat us again because that's that's kind of what we felt and the only real saving grace actually was that even though we didn't win that heat we still posted overall the third fastest time of all the eights so you know we kind of knew that there was a glimmer of hope but that we had to do something pretty monumental about the way that we um got the most out of ourselves on the water to to realize that and i think um that <laughs> Tell you a funny story about the what so one of the uh, one of the runs that we did um we, we we had one of these um and now everybody has the gps 
um, the NKGPS speed coaches um, in the boats, but we had one of these um, speed box things, the original NK things that had um, an arm that sits in the water and, and measures the boat speed. So this was before impellers even. So we had a you know a real time understanding of what the speed of the the shell was outside of just clocking 100 meter buoys or 250s or whatever. Um, so we used to do basically bow four versus stern four or outside pairs versus middle pair middle fours um, power strokes. And uh, we we went down the went down the run and um, n- normally normally bow four would beat stern four. Uh, obviously, most of the most of the, the the raw strength was in the middle of the boat, but just the characteristics of the way the boat is, the the, the bow four guys generally could get on it pretty well and pull us along in this in the in the in the, in the stern end of the boat. While as you know, obviously in the, in the in the stern end, you, you're kind of pushing the bow guys, so it's slightly different, I think. Um, so normally, the bow guys would beat the bow four would beat stern four on you know the raw numerical figure of speed on any of the power strokes, but um, We'd uh, we'd cracked out, um, you know. Roly the Cox was saying, "Look, guys, you've got to set the level here for Balfour to, you know, to to live at, and you know, let's see if we can set a level that they can't do for for their set." Um, so we spanked out. I, you know, I don't know what it was. It was like thirty strokes or something like that. It's you know mid twenties rate, and um, actually went faster than we normally went more, normally would go doing that kind of thing. You know, switched over to Balfour, and they. Um, they were like, you know, right, sleeves up, here we go, and started um, trying to take it on, and were were smacking at it in a, in an effort to try and achieve the speed. And I think, you know, you know, uh, coxes can be like sometimes, and um, you know, obviously Rowley's ribbing ribbing uh, Balfour because they couldn't quite match the speed of Stern Four on this occasion when normally they would, you know, have our pants down. Um, and uh, we got towards the end of the run, and you know, it's like at the end of the course where. You know the coaches congregate when their crews are turning around in the warm-up sessions, and you get some spectators there. And particularly just before racing starts, you get the press start coming out into the stands and that. And uh, and Riley's going, you know, come on, you guys, you can't, you know, you're not doing it. You 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 know, you got you got more here. There's more to go, more to go. And you know, suddenly there's a massive scream from the bass, and um, Ben, who's in the two seat, just goes absolutely ballistic to try and. Um, try and achieve the speed goes totally out of time so then um andrew's in the bow seat is uh shouting at ben to you know get in time and you know you get with the program and all this and this so he drops his blades and the fists come out and there's um a bit of a set to right right on the finish line in front of everybody um <laughs> and uh you know obviously in the in the stern of the boat we're just feeling like my god what the hell's going on the boat's rocking around this is this is awful, you know, what's happening? And there's, um, uh, you know, the coaches on the bank just looking at us going, oh, my God, they've completely lost it. But um, I think what Martin was thinking at the time, having spoken to him since about it, you know, he was thinking, right, guys, you're ready. You know, so there's so much pent-up aggression and desire and, you know, to an extent, anger. Anger turned into frustration that the that just set us up for the for the for the rep basically to go and prove a point and the the race plan at, at, at the rep was you know even more simplified than than our you know simple race plan that we had anyway and it was basically to put as much distance on the whole field as we possibly could halfway and that was it this really gives you a good idea of like the the mindset going to the final and like you know 
being in the boat, it is such, sometimes, like, you know, the energy can be so high. I'm not even surprised that that happens, especially before, you know, final Olympic Games. But going into going into the final of the 2000 uh, race, and it, this, this race is really special. Like, the listeners out there have got to watch this race to, to understand, you know, the, what we're talking about here. You guys, it seemed like you changed your race plan completely. Going from uh, getting beaten by Australians in the heat, and then on the, you know, in the final, you guys went out with, I don't know what the, the game plan was, but I can't wait to hear about it. And then within 500 meters, you basically put a length into Australia. So chat to us a bit about that final race and like what it must have been like, because it seems like you guys went out there just to gun it, get in front of there and just run the highest tempo, the highest intensity you can and hold, hold the rest of the field off. Yeah, I mean that's that was pretty pretty much the plan to be quite honest with you. Yeah, look, I mean the the experience in Lucerne taught us that we we needed to, or that actually, you know, racing the race is really really important. It's not just about doing uh, doing. Well, I was going to say it's not just about doing a process of going from start to finish. It, it, of course, it is doing a process of of delivering, you know, everything that you've um, you've developed. Uh, physically technically and mentally but i think the thing that was missing was the emotional element um you know and we'd been a bit a bit timid a bit scared in the in the in the heat and paid the price for it and you know two right two the australians you know deserved that victory because we we basically didn't race the race um and you know the 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 rep then proved to us that that mentality of you know, just war racing, you know, was, you, you just can't forget that, you know, and particularly in the eight, there's no time you get off the start, you get it going as fast as you can and you just don't slow it down. That's the majority of the battle. And, you know, the game plan basically was to get out, get the bow ball ahead within the first stroke and hit every single marker ahead. Yeah, obviously we're pushing and uh, making moves, but, the, the, but we were committing with almost complete abandon to the rest of the race for that current push. So, you know, when we came out and transitioned at uh, 250 meters, the transition was basically more, harder, higher, further. You know, we had a foot, we wanted two foot, we had two foot, we wanted three foot, you know, and it was that mentality that took us into the into the second quarter and you were just being greedier and greedier and greedier as we went down and, and then gaining in more and more confidence as, you know, we were just putting more and more distance on on the on the crews around us and you know it wasn't so much looking at the other crews and you know getting confidence from that it was more feeling the response from the shell and and knowing that the whole thing was alive and electric that was giving us almost fueling the fire so when we came into we you know we knew one of the strengths was our our middle thousand pace you know it was it was there wasn't anyone that could hold that pace we just had to get to a position to be able to capitalize on it and we did that, you know, we, we, from the very first stroke, you know, sitting there, you know, obviously you're focused in your own boat and, and, uh, you know, Ro- Roley actually said some pretty profound words, um, to us before the, before the, um, before the buzzer went off. And, um, you know, we, we, we were very much not just there for ourselves, but actually, actually there for everybody else that had been involved and particularly Harry, who was, um, who was suffering from, um, you know, very, very severe uh, cancer at the time, and he was fighting that. And you know, we we just went out with the mentality of 
of trying to fight in the same way that he was fighting, you know, and we thought that that was the least we can do, you know, so all of this emotion just came out on that first stroke. And I remember it like it was happening yesterday that you could feel that literally we'd done that first stroke and we were foot up before anyone else had even taken the blades out of the water. And, you know, the whole boat just lifted up and just shot off. And yeah, and just push after push after push was just more and more and more effective, yeah, down the track. And that was basically the plan. Get out, get ahead, stay ahead, go harder, go higher, go further. What was just post post the race at the Olympics, what was it like? You know, you, you got the gold medal and I, I know it's so hard to put into words that the feeling of, you know, standing on the podium with your gold medal around the neck and especially having a project come around super successful, but Chat to us a bit about that, um, you know, that moment in time and standing on the podium, having the gold medal around the neck, and and what was that? What was that feeling like? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Actually, like I get get asked that. Um, I think you know you, you get asked that st- that quite a lot actually, and um, it is very hard to put into into words. I mean, it, I mean, the race itself, we crossed the line. You know, we were obviously put under cr- tremendous amount of pressure in the in the closing stages of that race. Um, and um, but were able to you know keep ahead um, long enough to, to cross the cross the line in in first place. And I think that the initial yeah. the initial feeling was um, it was relief. Uh, you know, suddenly the body you know just you know, kind of emotion and adrenaline takes over, and um, yeah, we crossed the line actually. And uh, you know, obviously Roly the Cox sees. He knows what the result is. He, he's almost aware of it before we're aware of it because, you know, we're not looking around or any of that stuff. So, you know, we're just trying to, you know, pound in the last few strokes across the line. And, um, you know, he's up, he jumps up and he's actually jumped out of the boat. And um, first thing I thought was, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have done that if we didn't win. Um, so, uh, so yeah, kind of it took a bit of time to sink in. And um, we actually uh, we actually looped round um after we got the medals onto the other side of the regatta course where all of the um supporters were and there are a lot of um friends from uh, from from gb and actually sort of went over to celebrate a little bit with them before coming back to the pontoons but um yeah so it was a lot of it was relief and you know it, you know absolutely ecstatic for being able to pull off and 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 deliver the plan that we've been working on and that we knew was in there, but we never were able to put together at one time. And it just, um, because of that whole experience and different levels of putting pressure on ourselves, it all um, uh, came to fruition at the same time. And also, I'd say being guided by the senior members in the team as well. I think without Steve and Matthew and Tim and James and Greg and Ed Code in the pair, those guys, you know, w- without that that kind of structure of competition around us we wouldn't have been able to realize that and actually one of the things we did the day before the final was sit down in the village and watch steve redgrave win his fifth olympics uh, fifth olympic gold and and um you know all of the jubilation that came with that but then also watch um the pairs race which is you know it's, it's one of the races to watch isn't it that that pairs final yeah. um so you know, obviously knowing those guys and seeing them in the lead, and um, knowing how kind of uh, gifted they are as, as as athletes, and then and then seeing the um, you know the, the 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 French guys do what they did, and 
you know, I guess the realization that you've gone from the one end of things with the four to the other end of things with a pair. And, you know, we knew that we, we wanted to, um, uh, you know, you know, learn from that, that racing on that day and, and, you know, make sure that we were on the front foot the whole time. Um, you know, so, so that was, that, that, that all came out as we crossed the line and then going around to the metal pontoon just, um, you know, hadn't really experienced the metal pontoon that many times, really. Um, certainly not um, on the on the world level. Okay, World Cups, yes, but um, not not won the World Championships before that time, before that point. And obviously, for all of us, that was the first um, Olympic gold medal. It, yeah, it, odd feeling. Obviously, you know, incredibly emotional between the guys in the crew and. Um, and the coaches on the bank all came up and, you know, it's, it's the strangest feeling almost like, you know, despite all of that, certainly for me, it was like almost disbelief that felt like I didn't really belong there, you know, being this, you know, weedy, small, light, little heavyweight guy in this field of, you know, mountain men in, in ace racing. It was just the strangest feeling. Um, and I think it, it really wasn't, you know, almost... Yeah, yeah, it was odd, and it was almost until, not until coming home, to uh, to the UK and seeing seeing the uh, effect that not only the not only our race had had on the nation, but also the rest of the success of um, Team GB at the games. Because going from a pretty dismal games at Atlanta, where you know really Steve and Matthew were holding holding the nation up to such such a big success across the board at, at Sydney. It was just, you know, it's just this massive whirlwind. And it wasn't until seeing and experiencing that, that actually, I think, certainly from my perspective, didn't really realise the, the gravity of what we'd been able to achieve. And I think you, you've also got to remember in perspective that, you know, I think externally we probably weren't expected to win. Um, and um, a British eight hadn't win, won the Olympics before that since nineteen twelve. Uh, so you know, there had obviously been Olympic success and, 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 and you know medals and that, but like not actually been at the forefront. Um and uh you know from my my perspective, you know I, I you know okay it was a long road and I had to fight really hard and you know earn earn everything that I got. But you know very, very humble to have been part of that and to be part of the catalyst, I guess, for the future of the GB team as you see it more recently. So, Steve, I want to go into uh, there's two videos of uh, you guys training and, and building up to the to the racing, and you know they videos that like I don't know I found uh, someone gave them to me when I was just uh, like starting at uh, university and you know I kind of watched them over and over and I mean the one is was the this back in black video and I tried to look for it on on YouTube and I found the video but the the song has changed and uh, I'm not really sure why but the it was this back in black song over your guys training and it was so cool to watch and I mean uh, I think the first thing we want to know is the boat and why were you guys rowing in a in a black boat and the second thing is like that rowing in that video was so awesome. And I mean, you spoke about it a lot already of sure. you guys feel like you've mastered the, 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 um, the technique and you nailed the technique. And I, I really feel like 
watching your video. It's like one of those videos you can go back to and watch again and again and, and kind of always take some technical aspect out of the video, which is just so awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome to say. Like, I think, um, yeah, we, we've obviously this is, a, this is a special year for us because it's um, 20 years since the since the race itself, um, which um, is <laughs> I gotta say it's a bit of a strange feeling in itself. Um, but um, yeah, we we were obviously reminiscing, um, and we actually we actually connect and get together every year, and normally it's on the 24th of September, um, and uh, you know we really because um, you know we had a pretty tight knit bond you know i wouldn't say everyone was mates but actually we were we went through a lot of stuff together and you know i think staying connected has been um pretty fun fun experience post then as well but that video uh went went uh went around our whatsapp group um the other week um so yeah it reminded us a little bit of that as, and going through that um that block uh you know what we were doing at that time and um i said before that camp that was in brisbane i think the the, the most of the um uh most of the the training clips from that video um some of which was uh, all the stuff on the video is actually not too bad but some of that camp as i said before was a bit up and down um but really we just had this um we had this mentality of trying to you know the only way that we could make the boat go fast is to to do it in you know an efficient and effective way we just didn't have the strength that other crews had we couldn't pull ourselves out of trouble you know or we couldn't you know we couldn't pull ourselves ahead of the field we just we just didn't have the horsepower um and i think you know we we, we had that um i guess that mentality in all of the all of the stuff all of the approach that we had to training and particularly in in the in the, the way that we felt the boat we had to make the most out of how the boat was moving between the strokes and you know obviously we had to put as much on the boat as we possibly could between the strokes um but the the, the form the pattern was um you know basically developed in a in a in a in a way of complete movements and i think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with in when they're kind of trying to deliver rowing is to rush a particular element of the stroke um and I think that's why the simplicity element is really important because if you if you don't you know do something as simple as separate your hands away from your body you know you can't you can't expect to be able to take the catch well if you're not in a in a position to be able to take the catch whatever your stance on you know the nuance of the style that you're rowing there has to be some kind of um organization or there has to be some ability to transfer power onto the handle you know um you know, and then there has to be some ability to let the boat go underneath you. Um, and I think the way that we were taught to approach it was to maximise the input, but also maximise the output as well. Um, and, you know, we just did a lot of drilling on making sure that those movements were correct. And, you know, like I said before Lucerne in, in, in 2000, um, you know, we would, you know, we're having all sorts of problems, couldn't balance the boat and all this stuff. And, and literally... We spent a week on camp. I think it was over in Zan and learning how to do arms body slide again. You know, and this was two months before the Olympics. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so we, that's that's so fantastic. You know, and the the you know, like I hope one day uh, I can have a catch that looks uh, like your guys' catch in that in that eight. It was 
so impressive. I mean, the way, I mean, even there's a, there's a shot where you guys just take a, you like starting off a piece or something and you literally sitting backstops, both stationary and you move away and you just, the way you, the, the whole team just tucks the, the blade right at the front and, and moves straight onto connection and pressure is, is so impressive. And then I think, tell us about the, the boat and was the boat oh, yeah. anything yeah. special or did the, was that kind of just uh, part of the story? Um, I, I think, yeah, it's part of the story in that it was a conscious decision to you. It was a Vespoli. Um, and um, we started out the, or, or Martin McElroy started out the, the Olympiad campaign in an empacker. Um, and, uh, you know, that worked, that worked okay at the time. There was, there was absolutely, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with those, that boat. Um, but w- as we got closer to, you know, developing some speed, um, you know, and trying to get the most out of ourselves, I think Martin's view on the boat was trying to get the most out of the boat as well. And looking at other potential opportunities to help us get out what we need to get needed to get out of the boat as well um and we knew that the predicted conditions in sydney um the prevailing wind was a crosswind um and we knew that the vespoli boat was sat quite low in the water the gunnels were quite low and um and we'd done a lot of rowing and trying out in crosswinds to just get a sense of how the boat reacted in in different conditions um so um that was part of the reason um i think there was uh at the time uh vespoli was doing a little bit of r d on the on the hull as well um and i think uh the coaches were pretty confident that it was the best again this was for us specifically but it was the best balance of you know shape in the water you know wetted surface area in um versus rag and uh, uh, you know and the, and the um the ratio of the weight that the, the bows made versus the trail off the stern was was in the proportion that actually um supported the style of rowing that we were doing um so it was it was a very conscious decision um and you know certainly from our perspective we we felt that it was um something that was uh, a benefit not not necessarily from the perspective of it being a different boat, but more from the perspective of actually we've thought about what we might need if the conditions are not great. And we've thought about, okay. um, you know, if there is a crosswind that we want to be as least affected by it as possible. And obviously there's a balance there. You don't want the boat too low because you get yes. waves in. But um, um, it, it, just for us, it was the right thing. Um, but so- we were always willing to experiment with stuff like that. Um that I was going to say, uh, that that is so awesome, and I mean, you know, I definitely think there can be more uh, hype built up around the around the the types of boats that people use. You know, it's not it's kind of something that's just swept under the under the carpet, and you know, maybe there is a difference or not, but I still think that it could be a bigger talking point for for rowers. And then the last thing I want to touch on on the on your Olympic gold and the and the videos is that there was another video. Where you can hear the cocks uh, calling, and he's and in one of the calls he says that you guys are rowing at 34 fast enough to win the gold medal. And I want to ask, like, 
was that like did you guys have a speed that you thought okay if we can row at this speed we we should win the gold medal or was that just him trying to rile you up and and trying to squeeze a little bit more speed out of you guys yeah no i think we uh yeah i know, I know um i've seen the clip that you're talking about okay um we, we yeah we did row to speeds um but the speed was a very much we took the view that the speed was as a result of the delivery of what we were doing um and i think you've got a little bit careful with the speed stuff that you don't just try to row at a number at all costs um but um we we, we definitely did do a lot of training sessions um trying to uh deliver consistency at set speed so um and i think we've been uh influenced by the um uh by the dutch eight uh that won in atlanta from that perspective in some of the some of the way that uh some of the nuances of the program the training program being set up so we used to have a session that was um four by 2k rate 30 130 and that was that was basically we cracked out um, back to back, you know, the, the, the downtime between the runs was just as quick as you could spin the boat round. Um, and then we had another one, which was three by two K rate 34 split 125. Um, and we just cracked that out again and again and again. Um, so we had a lot of confidence rowing on sort of set speeds. And I think that, but in the right way, you know what I mean? So it's not yeah. like, um, it was sort of galvanizing, the physical element, the technical element, but drawing on the the mental qualities that we developed on all of those long sessions on the tideway, um, you know, nonstop. Yeah, everybody sits on the ergo, you know, is quite happy to to, to smash out um, 16k, 20k, 24k without stopping. But you try and do that on the water, and it's um, you know, it's a different ball game, and um, you know, it takes a bit of time to get used to doing that, and the Okay, yeah, the level of proprioception is very different, but it's still, it's a mental, you get so much mentally from being able to do that stuff. And we tried to feed that into then the speed work that we were doing. Um, and the, co the coaches were very, uh, very deliberate about the way they'd set us up to do that. Um, so uh, I can't, I, c I couldn't tell you right now what the speeds we were doing on the clip you were saying, but but, <laughs> but it would have been in the in the 100% the GMT ballpark. Very yeah. cool. And um, it's actually, it's really cool listening to you talk about that because there's a, I think there's an element that you're touching on there that, you know, we have with our training when we're doing you know, our, more, our more intense pieces that you need to actually spend time at a very high speed, especially for your whatever boat class, like getting familiar with what 125 feels like. I think that's, you know, that's a really interesting part of that kind of training is like how, you know, mentally, what are you feeling? Like how, how the technique works and, no, it sounds brutal, but I, I, I'm sure that the, you know, doing that back to back to back to back, it just makes that a little bit easier, and like the muscle memory, the mental prep that just feeds in so well to when you actually execute a really fast racing, a racing pace. Yeah, I think I, I couldn't agree more. Like it's, it's, it, it just gives you um, a really reliable framework that you can know, you know, you can slot into after your transition in a race. You know, it's just something that you've. Yeah. You've repeated and you've repeated and, you know, to, to the limits of your physical ability, but more than that, the limits of your mental ability and still being as consistent in the last 250 of whatever that session is as you were in the first 250. Um, 
And yep. it's just, you know, it's just repetitive quality and simplicity of that quality. Yeah, very, very good stuff there. Um, so as we we want to get into a little bit about your, you know, your coaching and um, you've had a very successful career as a coach and you spend a lot of time coaching, you know, the boat trace, which is one of the biggest events around rowing and actually one of the, the most high, pro- high profile events um, in the scene. And I'm just interested to hear your insights behind um, maybe firstly the differences between how do you structure a program and how do you go about coaching um, university athletes that are training for a much longer distance row, like almost seven kilometer race. And then on the, the, the variance in university athletes themselves from year to year, I'm sure some years you have, you know, with no, not disregarding, you know, the talent, but maybe some years you have way more prestigious rows and way more accomplished rows coming in. And some years you have a little bit less coming in. How, how is it like to handle that? Um, yeah, it's a okay, great question again. Like it's, it's really, you know, that whole experience for me, was really, really exciting. Um, very, very challenging. Absolutely. For sure. Um, you know, I, I, you know, most people as they, as they grow up with rowing, they row through school or university or through, you know, work life. So they have to be able to balance something else in their life with the, you know, with the stress and tiredness that comes from, from, from training. And, um, so I guess most rowers have some empathy for, you know, what, what, what people go through in a, on a, on a, you know, what, what it's like to, 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 to train at a high level, you know, whilst having to do something else. And I think that was one of the draws for me of the, of being involved with that program. Um, you know, I, I obviously being, um, from GB, I'd, I'd rode with a lot of guys from Oxford and Cambridge before, um, I'd been coached by Oxford and Cambridge coaches in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd actually in in the um, in the build up to Sydney, we'd actually uh, had some training camps up in Cambridge and um, done a lot of training on the on the ooze up in Ely, which is where the Cambridge guys do all of the uh, all of the water training. Um, but um, uh, the exciting thing for me was getting to grips with. Um, I'd actually I'd actually come from um, being uh, leading the program at uh, Imperial College. Um, another very prestigious uh university program based down in putney which is the start end of the um of the boat race uh, course um so i actually had a quite a lot of experience coaching not only rowing on the tideway as an athlete in the um, build up to sydney but then also coaching uh on the tideway in the university environment anyway before i'd got to to, to cambridge so it's kind of like for me it, it felt like a really really good fit you know, I had experience training there. Okay, I wasn't a student at Cambridge, unfortunately, but um, I uh, um, had spent a lot of time training in Cambridge, um, and you know, and I think because of that, had had felt um, I knew the environment, um, I knew the structure of the university as well, um, and um, yeah, was was super excited to to try and try and pull together some consistency there and at the time you know there'd been quite a few coaches um you know fantastic coaches go through the program but in quite quick succession um so the, one, one of the things that um sean bowden at oxford's been able to create over the years is some really really fantastic consistency in in what he does 
um, which I think is one of the uh, one of the foundations for their like longevity of the success he's had there. So yeah, go was on, it uh, so was it quite difficult to to change from being an athlete to a coach? And did that did that transition take quite a while to like kind of settle in? And then you know like what is it like? You know, you now you've done both sides of it. What is it like being on the bank as a coach when your athletes are going to do a huge race compared to being the athlete in the boat? Um, well, I think it's definitely taken time to get used to. I mean, the the, the um, and that, that I think that was the great thing about um, when I when I stopped rowing. I actually, continued rowing after Sydney and for for a little bit, but I had a I had a back injury which put me out for longer term. Um, uh, longer term on the athletic side of rowing, but I wasn't I wasn't drawn to coaching straight away. I kind of I went into the trying to trying to basically figure out again. It was like being back as um, you know a schoolboy trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, um, and uh, did a few things here and there. But always actually got asked to do a bit of coaching here and there, and I kind of felt that you know that was that was really really good fun and i got to a point where i was getting tired of sitting under strip lights in an office you know and tapping away at a computer screen um and wanted to do a little bit more and you know there was an opportunity that came up at imperial college uh actually simon cox who was uh who was there was was leaving to go off to switzerland to coach internationally there and so there's there was an opportunity for me um i think that was a good step for me to yeah, do exactly what you said. Try and figure out the link between communicating as an athlete that's sitting on a seat connected to a footplate, holding an oar that's you know can feel everything, to you know being on the land, having to translate what you see into you know into something that then can be constructively used to develop individuals. And I think that um, that experience was fantastic, and we had a lot of success at Imperial. Got you know a lot of foundation for a lot of um, athletes there to go on to um, international success um, and, and actually future Olympic success uh, but for me in terms of coaching that was really really good grounding then to go on to Cambridge because you've got like you said earlier you know a really challenging environment where you've got you've got a real big mix of people um, from you know Olympic medalists through to complete novices in this program with a massive massive pressure on the academic environment and there's there's zero um tolerance given to um leeway on the academic side so you know it's so many people that say to me that yeah come on that that can't be true that's there's no way that's true well it one of the i think one of the things that the athletes get out of being in the um in the boat race program um is the experience of having to deal with you know a high level of sport and a high level of, of academics and um you know you you know or everyone knows now that the research in is is pretty clear that you know um that sport sport in itself or having extracurricular activities as a whole but sport in itself is so healthy for students to maintain the right balance of um uh you know mental health physical health you know and scholastic development that i think the boat race program encapsulates that and you know epitomizes that and there's certainly no leeway given to them on the academic side and also there's no leeway given to them on the on the sports side either um you know i i i 
used to demand quite a lot of them um, in terms of the time commitment, you know, in terms of the intensity of the training. And, you, you know, you asked about the difference between training somebody for a uh, for a you know, 20 minute race versus a, a 2K race. And to be honest, the, 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 the crux of the program isn't too different. You still got to, you know, it's still a massively cardio intensive um, effort that you've got to produce. The only the only difference is that you've got to be um, a little bit more able to be able to um, cope with lactate onset and fatigue and you know the mental challenge of being side by side, not just when you're five minutes into a race, but when you're 10, 15 minutes into a race. And then you know the the, the tactical challenge of knowing that there's a bend coming up that's not in your favour, that is in your favour, that you know your strengths, that you know you know the opposition strengths and um you know so 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 training ultimately is as much training as can go in around the academic schedule it's early mornings like anyone else who's in an academic environment um you know or a work environment there's nothing nothing special about it and there's no you just can't can't take shortcuts you just got to do the work it's like everything else um but i used to focus a lot on um you know, day to day on delivering the qualities, you know, in small chunks that would be required on 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 boat race day, and you know, and some of on the, and the role for some of the more experienced people is to help support the less experienced people. Um, and one of the fantastic things at Cambridge was that we were able to develop a a, a really reliable feeder program from support of the colleges uh, within uh, within the university to. To, to, to help develop prospective uh, boat race athletes and you know you only need one or two people like that every year to come through the program and um, you know suddenly there's a lot of momentum and it's the same um, you know for any any echelon of, of the squad uh, around that whether there's you know schoolboy rowers or club rowers coming in international rowers um, and that that was such a fun time and, and you know developing consistency of expectation um you know it definitely took a few years to get into the groove of that and understand um you know w- what needed to be pushed and what needed to be relaxed a little bit where there needed to be space for you know i wouldn't say leeway but space for um you know academic requirements or um you know because because that was that's that was that was super important and and actually there's one of the um, one of the older presidents uh, donates uh, donated a prize um, for academic achievement. Um, so every year there's a there's a you know obviously there's ergo tests and there's selection and all that kind of stuff and everyone wants to do well at that. But there's also a race to get the academic prize, which has got absolutely nothing to do with where you are on the erg sheet or where you are on the seat racing matrix or whatever. It's you know if you're on the team, you know, and you're the highest performing academic. You get presented with a, um, you know, really traditional uh, boat race painting to to keep for that year, and then the next year you have to hand it on to the next guy who, who wins your prize. So there's a, you know, we try to create this ethos of, you know, responsibility from an athletic perspective, but also the scholastic perspective. And yeah. you know, I think by the end there, the balance of that was pretty good. I think you know, it wasn't, and it, it took me time to develop that as well. And I think every every campaign got a little bit better and a little bit better. And, you know, exactly like my Olympic experience, that it wouldn't have happened without the people who've been involved 
with that program before in the same way as the um, Cambridge program wouldn't have developed if it hadn't have been for the squad developing in the previous season. We just had to make sure that we did the previous year's team justice by not making the same mistakes again, whatever the mistakes were, and reinforcing the the gains that had been made. You know, and that was kind of it. Just gathered momentum over the years, and you know, I'm really really proud of what the guys achieved, and um, you know, and 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 how it how it you know how it developed. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic experience. Sure, that is it's so awesome. It's so cool to to hear that from someone that's been in the system and built the system and and been such a, a crucial part of it because you know you as again you're only watching the the race at the end of the day and then you know just trying to build up the the info behind the scenes is is really awesome. And I think there's a ton more that we could ask on the the coaching but obviously this interview is uh, or this chat has gone so well that we we're already pushing a huge chunk of time so we're gonna we want to move on to to the quick fire questions but before we get to the quick fire questions we do want to touch on uh what it's what it's like in in gb at the moment uh with jürgen leaving and if that is you know kind of what is what does it feel like for everyone and you know um how are people thinking for for the next few years yeah i think i think you know globally Anyway, this is a it's an incredibly challenging time for everybody, isn't it? With a pandemic, and you know, it's absolutely fantastic to see people racing at the European Championships um, uh, the other weekend. Um, you know, and to see how fierce the competition there is. Um, and I think on the ground here, we just um, you know we, we we haven't been able to, um, to to make the trip over to Europe to, to do the competitions, but we've just been taking each day at a time and. And actually, you know, developed. Um, we went into lockdown like everybody else, middle middle of March, um, you know, and had to cope with the whole um, postponement of the games. And you know, the guys have done a, a fantastic job training at home. And you know, and to be honest, with the whole social media, the way it is, it's been fantastic to see everybody training you know, in their home environments. You know, you guys doing your stuff, and you know, from from whatever nation. You know, in whatever discipline has been, you know, it's just been inspiring to, to, to watch. And, you know, obviously now we've been um, been on the water for, um, what, six weeks or so now. And um, we're just trying to translate all of that um, excitement through um, the, 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 the challenges that we faced in the COVID um, restricted period. And obviously we're still massively restricted and got to be super, super careful. Um and uh you know training is right now is is um centered around all of the the rules and regulations that we have to adhere to which is um which is uh which is actually you know it's i've got to say that everyone's the guys taking it in their stride and you know i think just enjoying being out on the water again and, and and getting out in boats and um i think like everybody else you know we're we're um, limited on the amount of people that we can have in one place at one time. So there's a lot of scheduling that goes on. And um, I think the whole team is, is, is managing that um, really, really, really well. And, you know, of course, it's um, it's uh, it's sad that uh, Jürgen's retired. Um, he's such a fantastic um, uh been You know, he's been in the fabric of British rowing for decades and decades and decades and had such an incredible 
um, track record over that period of time. But you know, we, we we've got to keep moving on and you know um, build on, on on what he's he's um, he's developed over the years and do that justice. And and I think that's the approach that that the guys and everyone else is taking um, on a daily basis, which has been um, kind of exciting and inspiring to be part of. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely, and um, I mean, I must say, it was it, it was uh, watching European champs. That, you know, the British the British team was definitely missed there. Uh, for us down here, I mean, we would honestly watching the racing. It was, you know, it would be great if everyone could just race European champs. But you know, it would be nice to see GB back on the you know back on the program racing again. Um, but this brings us to the end of our interview, where we ask a set of questions called the quick fire questions, which are the same for every person we have on the show and we get awesome answers from them. So the first part of our quick fire questions is if you could race any boat class at the Olympic Games, what would it be? Well, um, well I, I mean, the eight's got to be the one. Um, the eight's got to be the one because that's obviously, that's, that's, my, <laughs> that's my weather vane. But, but um, when I when I started out in, in, in the sport, um, I started out as a sculler and um, and uh, did a lot of training in singles, doubles, and quads. And I think I think in terms of the craft, I, I really love the double. I think doubles one of the um, it's one of the most fantastic boats. You know, also the pair, but the double from um, you know a pure joy of the balance between um, symmetry and physiology and feel and um, you know, just the exhilaration when they go well is, I, 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 you know, I'd love to experience, I'd love to have the skill set and the physiology to being able to experience that in an international level. Yeah, especially yeah. those, especially those doubles that are going, you know, like um, maybe not, maybe a bit quicker than like sub six ten, but like the round sub six, uh, like six or five, and then and then obviously under six. Those doubles, I think, to get them to that level is just absolutely insane. And I mean. You know, we always talk about the double being quite easy, like it's quite an easy boat to just row, but to actually get it fast is really, really difficult and requires a huge amount of, of skill and finesse. But yeah. the, the next question is, if you could choose any three people from any time, anywhere in the world to row or to race in a Coxus 4 with, who would your three crewmates be? Yeah, is it, these these question guys are, are awesome. Like I've uh, I've listened to a few of your more recent uh, <laughs> podcasts, and uh, I, you know, just I think you know the stuff you're doing is fantastic, but the questions are, are great as well. And you know, it's really interesting to 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 hear what people say. Um, but I think yeah. for me, um, I uh, it's, it's difficult. But for me, I think um, one of my uh, one of my idols, if you like, one of my the people I really looked up to, um, uh, and I, I tried to emulate in a lot of ways was um, Nico Rinks, who was the stroke man of the um, the Dutch eight uh, in uh, Atlanta, and um, you know he 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 was um, uh, you know, actually incredibly uh, talented. Um, uh, athlete anyway and was was also a gold medalist in the in the double so you know incredible guy um but in, in terms of rowing um he was the guy that i i i really uh i really wanted to be like i knew he wasn't um 
so great on the ergo. I was never so great on the ergo, but I also knew that he was able to handle himself and um, you know lead a crew in a, in a in a way that got the most out of the crew. So he's definitely on my in my um, uh, in my uh, top top list of guys to to row with. The the, the other so at least two more, right? So um, uh, you know I, I definitely say I definitely want to say a lot of guys that have been through the British team. Um, and you know, I've been very fortunate to have been able to row with a couple of those guys anyway in in in, in the past. But I think um, a couple of guys that I think would be really exciting to to, to row with um, in the four would be uh, the German pair from uh, 1994 of um, Peter Holzenbein and Torsten Strappelhoff. And I know that um, they got beaten by Stephen Matthew. Um, uh, but um, to silver medal, I think it was that year. Um, and actually, I think in Lucerne they they got beaten as well by Stephen Matthew that year. But the way that they took on, um, especially the 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 final in in '94, um, and uh, also also um, the fact that they were they were in the Cambridge Blue Boat that year um, probably sways me that way a little bit. Um, but the way they took that race on and just hammered it out from the start and literally. You know, in, in in the same way, or seemingly same way. I haven't actually spoken to them directly about it, but seemingly same way that we tried to attack the race in Sydney, and they just, you know, had massive kahunas and just went for it and put as much ground on Stephen Matthews as they possibly could. And um, you know, everyone knows the prowess of of um, Stephen Matthew, and they were able to overhaul them in the end. But you know, it took them, you know, an incredible amount of effort and energy to do that. And I think. Um, with those two guys, um, with Peter and Torsten and, and, and Nika, I'd love to, I'd love to row that straight four. Um, I'd have to row on bow side, I think, but um, I started out that way, so hopefully I wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> so yeah, well that's that. definitely that's a, a fantastic four that I'm gonna have to go do some homework on because I'm not, I, I, I must say I'm not completely familiar with uh, your three crewmates, but. Definitely sounds yeah, really good. Go watch the uh, that that ninety four worlds race is on is a def- is definitely on YouTube. Go okay, go. I'll definitely give that a watch. And uh, talking about races, the next question is: What is your favourite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again? It doesn't have to be one of yours. It can be from uh, whatever rowing race. It doesn't even have to be at the Olympics. But yeah, what's your what's your um, feelings on that? Yeah, this was a, this was a, so I knew that was coming. So this was a tough one uh, again because um, there's so many like I just um, this is such a fantastic sport and the competitiveness has just been incredible over eons that there's just so much to choose from but I think the ones that stand out for me um, uh, I loved the uh, um, the men's double from Lona with uh, Peter Anthony and uh, Stephen Hawkins um, both uh, where they where, where they won gold, but they were both uh, lightweights or ex lightweights or two B lightweights. Um, so that's a fantastic race. But I think the one that stands out for me the most um, was actually uh, and the one that I watched growing up and having moved to Notts County to train with guys at Notts County was actually uh, Peter Haining uh, winning the uh, winning his first of three World Championship singles uh, lightweight singles medals gold medals in uh in 93 um in uh Richichi. and um he'd he'd had a lot of success in in um in the straight four 
um, before that, but this was um, his first uh, his first success in the single uh, winning gold. But actually, he if, if you watch the race, he took the race out. Um, you know, he's got he's got incredible technique anyway. And I, I remember seeing him in action in training and being one of the guys that I aspired to be like when I was at Nottingham. Um, you know, bashing around the lake. Um, but to see that then. Um, this actually happened before I got to Nottingham, but in so '93. Um, but to 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 know what that he, he how he operated as a as a day-to-day athlete, um, but to see the race, him take the race on, and he was leading at 500. He's leading a thousand. I think he's about a length up, um, and then he starts to get rowed down. And I think going into 500 to go, he's about half a length down, um, and. Um, he he hits a boy uh and it catches a it's not a complete banjo but he catches a crab off a by from from hitting a boy and he almost loses the blade it almost comes out of his hands on the on the bow side and um he he writes himself and if you talk to him about it he'll come out with some elaborate story about it but he he's really really skillful enough to 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 catch hold of the uh catch hold of the oar again and um right himself get himself straight in the lane again um and i think it's about it i'm definitely into the closing stages um he basically said he, he basically bashed out um three three sets of 10 of camp you know the most kamikaze strokes he could put together and it was like a hundred percent adrenaline fueled um and he managed to get get level and then just getting his nose ahead and, and, and take the victory. And, and I think a little bit like our experience in Sydney, where we, you know, we had to face some, get over a bit of challenge to get the wind us up, you know, us to, to actually, you know, get, get, get the job done. He, in the same way, you know, if it, I think if he, he would, he would say, if you talk to him that if he hadn't have done that, he, he wouldn't have been able to get back on terms and then get his net, his bowels ahead, but he just like switched into a different gear and um you know it's absolutely incredible to watch and um yeah so that that's the one that i used to watch um you know because i knew him at, at nottingham but also you know when i was when i was uh, learning to to skull before that but i mean it's a really tough question there's so many amazing races close races yeah, yeah there's you know, so yeah. many races that is a good one though that's yeah. a good one and everyone that uh everyone knows that when you make a mistake in the in a race you always always overdo the recovery uh of your mistake yeah. and like if, if that's too early in the race it can be a serious uh cost i remember racing at henley once and uh i was racing with uh, another guy in our, in our team david hunt and we hit yeah. uh we hit some geese halfway down the track and we we're already up we we're racing the greeks and we we're already up and we hit these geese and like they only caught back like let's say half a length or a length but our response to that was so ferocious that it really <laughs> took it out of us like the the end of that race was really hard because <laughs> you've overextended yourself completely with the adrenaline pumping through your body yeah, so yeah, yeah. Was definitely yeah. you just gotta, uh, you just gotta hope the adrenaline lasts until the line right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly so the the next one is if you were in charge at world rowing what would you change? I, I'm definitely a bit of a traditionalist and I love 2K racing. And, 
you know, I, I, I'd be really sad to see it change yeah. from 2K six-lane racing. Um, but I think there's also an element of realism that, you know, things can't, you know, things, things have to move with the times a bit, as long as there's a good reason for that. And I think, you know, if, if, if we need to, as a sport, I think if we need to make some decisions to make sure that the sport is relevant at an Olympic level, then that's a pretty sound reason to me. But I think just to change it for change's sake is a different is a different thing. It's just because I'm a traditionalist, really. But you know, that said, there's there is some fantastic stuff that's already out there and already happening. I mean, there's, um, you know, this 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 sprint racing. You know, and going way back in in this country, there used to be televised sprint racing, eight sprint racing, sponsored by a truck manufacturer. You know, there used to be a series that happened through the year. Um, you know, and this is this is in the 19, 1980s, 1990s. Um, you know, so there's a, you know there's like a, a televised series almost that, um, and uh, you know you've got something like the Heineken Cup where, um, you know, over in over in Holland where you've got multiple distances. You know, five k, I think it's two or two and a half k, seven fifty, and definitely a two fifty, and you get points for where you finish in each of those races. So you don't just do one race; you do all of the races, and you know there's a there's kind of a, a, a victor ladorum for the overall winner. So that's you know that's a fantastic idea. You get everything from the endurance element of a you know the massive endurance element of the 5k to the you know the hugely fiery punchy element of the of the um, uh, 250 meter race. So that's yeah. you know a, a really good example of something that's different. And then there's you know there's other races as well that you you, you you maybe have to pre-qualify for lanes. Um, I used to take the Cambridge guys over to the great race in New Zealand um, where, um, you know, it's actually sponsored by a car um, manufacturer and a few days before uh, the race itself, which is, um, which is a side-by-side five-kilometer race into the stream on a really windy course, um, you know, onto a stream like, like you would do in the Oxford Cambridge boat race, but it's the, the, the Oxford Cambridge boat race is going with the stream, not against it. <laughs> so you know, you've got to cross over, you've got to decide where you push, you know, how long you stay out in the stream for. But to, to to get the opportunity to choose a lane, you have to do an ergo challenge. So okay. you know, you all meet up in the in the car showroom, um, and it's actually well, this particular one was done on sliders, so you get bow pair of each each eight. Um, versus bow pair, all hooked up on a monitor, the old you know, comp- Concept Two competition style monitor. Um, yeah. You know, huge crowd. You know, bow pairs. The sum of the bow pair score goes up on the screen. You know, and um, do 500 meters, get off, three and four get on. They do theirs. You know, and you're competing directly in you know in a crowd environment. So there's a massive buzz. There's a height. There's a commentator just laying into people. Um, yeah, you know, I love and, it. And then off the back of that, you get to choose the lane you race in. Yeah, um, I love so it, and I love the, I love having the like keeping the Olympics as the the gladiator events, and then having these other events that have more hype and and build more momentum into the sport. I always think that that's uh, such a brilliant idea because you don't want to change the games. Uh, I think the longer they leave it, the more chance they have to change it, but. I think there's still a lot they can do building up to bring more hype into rowing. 
the next the next question is the the one that all the, all the rows want to know about is what is your two thousand meter personal best on the Urgo? Uh, so on the static C two, uh, it was six minutes flat. Oh no! Nice. No, <laughs> so that's, that's not just, nice. Just, 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 <laughs> like that one is. Like zero zero, was it six flat? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, tough. I, I take it the way around I have it any day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose yeah. you have the six minutes flat, but you have an Olympic gold medal, so it's uh, it's right. kind of irrelevant. Yeah, it's just I mean the the scores that guys do now and the depth of the depth of um, physiology that people are generating now is just it's just insane and it's absolutely you know fantastic to you know to to, to see how the sport has moved on and evolved and pushing the boundaries world records are breaking in you know world records that have stood for years and years and years and um you know and crews are being dominant and in different ways and some events um you know the the the, the prowess or the, the you know the um the kudos is changing over quite regularly but the you know the ergos are things that are definitely moving on but i think it's not the only part of the jigsaw puzzle yeah, yeah and actually just on that on the topic to you know to tie that into the you know the racing in Sydney, um, if you if you were to follow the American uh, build up into that race is that you know they've got that the documentary I actually can't remember it's a it's a fine line or something like that that's the name of the documentary but anyway the the decision was um, I think towards the end was they had a university athlete that was an absolute monster on the ergo but had no experience and it was a very Know, very new sport, and they, I think the the coach at the time decided to stick him in the eight. Yeah. Anyway, thinking that you know this this guy's, you know, I think he was sub 40 or very close to sub 40, the you know, fastest guy in the states. Was like put this guy in the eight. He's got to gun it down the track and, and be the the difference we need. It's interesting because it just goes to show that you know you might swap someone in that has a massive ergo, but it, like we've this, as we've discussed throughout the whole interviews, there's so much more that goes into moving a boat, and that that alone will will not make a bit make a difference and oftentimes will make the boat go slower yeah that's for sure yeah no I, I think you're right I think yeah it's um it's it, it's difficult I mean you you I mean I've t- talked to Mike take you quite a lot about um that uh that the the that the journey that those guys had over that period of time and um you know it was definitely really tough on them that they what you know what was really able to, they were able to turn that round and yeah, and you know, realize success um, uh, later on, and that was fantastic to see in um, in um, in two thousand four. Yeah. So you know, the, the, this stuff it's, it all, all all goes around, and I think that's you know, fantastic thing that you guys are doing to to bring out the stories there. And we're very fortunate to have you know the journey that we had and the bumps and the the grinds along the way. But for them and their experience, you know, they they, they probably needed the experience that they had through the 2000 period to realize what they realized after that and then you know probably the canadians after them and you know it goes around and around and around it's it's really funny because that kind of that theme that uh, they did the canadians almost emulated uh like exactly and then only the next cycle getting it right so the last question is which is going to be very difficult for you because I think you are obviously severely attached to rowing. But if you had to choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, which sport would you choose and why? Oh, um, 
So, so yeah, this is t- like I mean, <laughs> I was never that great at, until I found rowing. I was never that great at sport. I think not. Um, I think purely from the perspective of I never, I never put enough energy into doing a specific sport in a way that rowing drew me into. Yeah, so that's challenging. But I, I definitely think I'd love to do an endurance winter sport of some sort, um, just because uh, we have so many training camps. These the between sessions just sit sit there and uh, just stick Eurosport on and watch, you know, like the biathlon or something like that in you know through the afternoon in a sort of a semi comatosed fatigue state <laughs> state. Um, and I think you know the 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 endurance element of some of those winter sports. Uh, I'm not I, I'm not so. I think I wouldn't I wouldn't turn my hand to the short sprint stuff so well. I love watching it, and it's fantastic to see the skaters, speed skaters, and that. I think one that I'd I really enjoy doing if I could be good at it would be the the longer the longer cross country yeah. ski based racing. So so basically, you're just a sucker for pain because there's there's two kinds of people <laughs> yeah. that we've had on the show. It's people that when we ask this question, they go as far away from endurance and physical effort as they can. And then there's people that are like, okay, well, I'm already good at rowing and I love hurting myself. So let's go find something else that is just as hard. And uh, yeah, yeah. cross country skiing, I think, well, lines up. It's pretty close. Yeah, there's a certain uh, more carb satisfaction you get from putting your hand in the well and keeping it there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Yeah, yeah, is there anything that you want to add at the end or, or anything you, you we missed out that you really wanted to talk about? Uh, I don't know. I think I've been blabbling on enough. <laughs> um, I, I just, um, I, I think, I think the the project that you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic. I think you know, um, I, I'm definitely going to look through the archive and um, listen to some of the older stuff that you that you've brought together. And I think it's, you know, it's absolutely fascinating, and um, you know, and it's great that people are so open and honest about their experiences. And you know, I'd love to hear some. You know, there's there's a lot of people who are. Um, currently, you know, at a high level in the sport, but I'd also love to hear some of the, you know, the older stories, you know, uh, of, of of people who were at the top level at the time. You know, people like Thomas Langer or Carpinen or you know, people yeah. like that. Um, the Abenalis, the, the Italian guys. You know, it just there's there's so many fantastic um, yeah. stories out there to be heard. I think it's yeah, it's it's um, it's it's great stuff you guys are doing. Karpinen and, and Langer are definitely on the list. I've tried to get hold of Karpinen in the past, but I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we can get an interview with him. Thanks so much, Steve. And I mean, really, you, you really shared some amazing stories there. And, and I think that there's so many takeaway points uh, from that chat that I think people are going to absolutely love. Yeah, I look forward to it, guys. Thanks a lot. And um, good luck with all training. Cool. So that's a wrap for our Steve Trapmore episode. And yeah, what an epic episode. What a crazy, cool uh, story he had and and really getting into it. Jake, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I always do, obviously. But um, I think uh, we spoke a bit about it before beforehand. These these eights are, you know, it's, it's such a huge investment of time, energy, and, you know, it's just social capital when you want to get the eight going to the Olympics and winning gold medal. It really is a, a team effort. And, 
speaking to Steve Chapmore, you you kind of like got the sense of the, all the different moving parts that came together for the Olympics because they really did uh, have an incredible form at the Olympic Games. It wasn't like they you know, they were the favourites going in. It wasn't like they had really good results beforehand. You just saw steady improvement, and you know at the Olympic Games they were on crack of fire. And I mean it wasn't easy sailing, and they still had to go through the rapid charge, which is not something you often see, but. Well, that final was probably you know one of the, the best eight races of history. So really, really cool stuff. And, and I'm so glad we got to chat to him about uh, that race. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I love so much about the eight because on you, know, you have four years of training and preparation for a less than six-minute performance where you have to get nine people to put their absolute best performance down Otherwise, you miss out, and then you see it. They may don't even go through the straight through the heat. They have to go through the rep, and then putting all those pieces together to to get the win on the day is so epic. And yeah, what a what a cool story. Yeah, very very cool stuff. Um, and yeah, besides that, guys, just a little bit more housekeeping to, to close up. You guys can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you guys can get in contact with email. Um, you can DM us on Instagram. If you guys want to, you know, get in, t- get in touch and tell us how great we are or how bad Lawrence is, depends on your, your option there. And of course, you can also support us on PayPal. Um, every little bit of help goes a very long way. And um, we cannot, uh, we can't wait to see the growth of the show. Um, and like we said earlier, we are just so excited with this new studio. It is amazing. Yeah, so we're going to bring out, uh, we have a new interview coming up later later on, so that'll come out on this uh, this better, so, uh, better, better equipment, so that's going to be very cool. And yeah, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great week and train hard as always. Yeah, guys, stay healthy, stay hydrated. <laughs> we're out. Ciao. <laughs>